This morning's reading comes from the Gospel according to John in the 14th chapter, verses 15 through 21. It is Jesus who is speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Creator, and they will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees them nor knows them. You know them, because they abide with you, and they will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will know that I am in my Creator, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Creator, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. Any of you who have heard me preach for longer than maybe two or three weeks will know that this is a bit of an old complaint, but it drives me a little crazy how the Revised Common Lectionary, this way of working through our Bible that churches tend to use together, chops up passages into little, tiny, digestible pieces. This isn't a bad thing in the sense that it allows us to focus on one idea at a time. Especially in moments like this, today's passage is part of a four-chapter-long discourse in the Gospel of John that would take longer to read than this sermon will take to preach. And it's a theologically dense text. Cutting it apart allows us to unpack the many curling, looping threads that we find However, the problem in all of it is that cutting these little sections out, taking them out of context, causes us to lose the fullness of the whole. When you read just these few verses, it is easy not to know or to forget that Jesus is speaking here on the night before his crucifixion, that just a few minutes earlier in the same speech he had told the disciples that they had a new commandment. He said, Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. And that's important because today's text begins by referring back to a moment outside of the assigned section for the day. We need to remember that Jesus' injunction to keep the commandments is not referring to Deuteronomy, to those Ten Commandments that we are so familiar with, but rather to this love. Because the keeping of this commandment, the commitment to loving one another, this is how the way of Jesus will be made known. When Jesus tells the disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he's not issuing a litmus test, but outlining a natural consequence in the sense that loving Jesus, loving the presence of God in human flesh, must inevitably lead us to loving one another, to loving all of those who carry the image of God. Jesus' words are not conditional. Rather, they are a reminder that our love for God is made manifest through our love for one another. And that is a deceptively simple statement. From the early days of this pandemic, as life as we knew it ground to a halt and our perspective shifted rapidly, I have heard people saying that going back to what was normal should not be our goal, and indeed that we couldn't go back even if we wanted to. 
And while I tend to agree that we shouldn't go back, I am becoming more and more aware that we could quite easily because all of the factors that got us into that reality in the first place, they all still exist and they all still have power. The prime example of this, of course, is the omnipresent narrative that we must choose between what is in the best interests of public health and what is in the best interests of the economy, because we are told that the two must be held as diametrically opposed, a statement that is not and never has been true. And yet, this narrative continues to have power over our national discourse. This narrative, which, pushed to its extreme, sees human beings as nothing more than resources to be exploited in order to feed an illusion of prosperity that has never been real. And what is more, it is an illusion of prosperity that is especially devastating to communities of color which make up a disproportionate amount of what we now term essential human labor, but also a disproportionate amount of virus deaths in the last two months. But the narrative continues. In a time of deep uncertainty and upheaval, the familiarity of such narratives become a source of comfort. Everything is changing, but the economy is still our primary focus, and we cling to the comfort of this notion even as we can see the cracks widening. The presence of cracks in the facade, however, suggests that it is not just the comfort of the familiar that we cling to, but it is the fear of what will change and what that change will entail. For the narratives of our society and culture do not exist in a vacuum. They are not only ways of being that we have seen and heard, but ones in which we have been active participants. To look closely at the cracks we are witnessing, the ways we are being reminded that it only took a couple of weeks of crisis to bring everything crashing down around us, that the impact throws into stark relief disparities of race and class, all of it calls us to question not only the society we live in, but the reasons that we've never questioned it before. It calls us to question the movement of our own hearts that have allowed us to make ourselves comfortable in maintaining our great collective illusion. And to look closely at the cracks that we are now beginning to witness is to become very uncomfortable very quickly. And so we maintain the narrative, even as the death toll rises. But this is not our commandment. What does it mean to love one another? It's another uncomfortable question when we consider the harm that has been done in the name of love, in the name of Christian love. For in love, we have colonized, imposed culture and language on countless peoples. In love, we have tried to pray away the gay. In love, we have urged the oppressed to look to salvation in heaven rather than to justice on earth. For centuries, the church has acted to maintain its power and has called that action love. We have used Jesus' commandment to the world's advantage, even to the point of defining love in ways that maintain the status quo. Because when a white person seeks racial justice, well, that's love. But when a black person does, that's divisive anger because love is only love when those in power feel loved and comfortable and safe. 
But is this love? What does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to hear this commandment now, at this point in our scriptures, in the mouth of one who will be crucified mere hours later by people willing to sacrifice innocent life to maintain the illusion of prosperity, of safety, of comfort? What does it mean to be commanded to love by the one who lived the destabilizing truth that love prioritizes justice over comfort, bellies over pockets, communal over individual? What does it mean to be commanded to love by one who gave his life for the uncomfortable idea that the love of God is for the despised of this world? We don't need to lose our physical lives in order to put to death our ways of living that keep us focused on our own comfort, rather than on the love that shatters human illusions for the sake of a new reality that makes manifest the presence of God. For God's presence has too long been defined to us as comfort and peace, such that we become unwilling to grapple with the realities of our world, for fear that when we uncover the biases of our hearts— when we shatter the illusions of economic prosperity as the greatest good, when we bear witness to the injustices that crack open our comfortable world, when we name race and gender as constructs created to maintain hierarchies of power, the discomfort we will feel in those moments will feel like divine abandonment. We fear that when we name the truths of this world's cruelty, the truths of our complicity, we will find ourselves removed from the presence of God as we show ourselves to be those who did not keep the commandments, as those who love Jesus are supposed to do. We fear because the world tells us to fear, because the world tells us that our comfort is the mark of our worth, because the world tells us that love should only ever make us happy. We fear because the world tells us to fear, but the world neither sees nor knows the truth of God's presence, as much as it likes to pretend otherwise. What does it mean to love one another? Jesus knew quite well, as he came to the end of his time on this earth, that his one life would never hold the fullness of experience and knowledge that we would need in our own diverse lives. Jesus knew that this question of how to love one another would haunt us, and that the world would tempt and manipulate and lie to us as we sought answers. Jesus knew that we would need an advocate, a presence that would argue with us, push back at us, and still accompany us and guide us as we seek to show forth our love for God in our love for one another. And the world will tell us that God's presence is made known in our comfort, in our feeling comforted in our own hearts. But we know the spirit of truth, who reminds us that God's presence is not just feeling okay with everything. It is that which gives us the courage to choose the discomfort that brings justice, secure in the knowledge that even in that discomfort we will never be orphaned and we will never be abandoned. Because no matter what the world says to us, no matter how much it insists that our power is a mark of God's favor in our lives, that love is a gift that must be earned rather than a fundamental truth of our existence, that we must sacrifice human life to the illusion of economic prosperity, we know better. We know that death will not have the final word. 
we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even the discomfort of acknowledging all of the times that we've listened to the world, rather than doing what Jesus commanded. What does it mean to love one another? What does it mean that our love for one another shows forth our love for God? What can it mean but to stand firm in the presence of the Spirit and speak the truth in the face of fear and speak the truth in the face of power, that the life that God created should not be crucified for the sake of wealth, that justice should not be crucified for the sake of comfort, that love should not be crucified for the sake of the world. What can it mean to love one another, but to be willing to follow Jesus, to give up our lives, to give up our ways of being, our ways of seeing, our ways of understanding the world, until the ways of being and seeing and understanding of all of those who bear the image of God are given space and voice and power, even if it makes us terrifically uncomfortable in the moment. What can it mean to love one another, but to acknowledge all of the ways that we have participated in the sins of the world, the ways that we have perpetuated injustice in the name of security, the ways that we have reduced human beings to exploitable resources in the name of prosperity, the ways that we have silenced entire communities and lifted up our own lives as universal in the name of comfort, the ways that we have committed acts of spiritual, emotional, and physical violence in the name of love, and to repent and to repent actively, openly, for the damage our sins have caused. What can it mean to love one another but to be open to the discomfort of asking this question over and over and over again, of seeking new answers as we learn and grow together, of letting the Spirit not only accompany us but guide us, challenge us, engage us in the work of love that we are called to do? This virus has set before us the clear divisions between the world's desires and the promises of our faith. But it is not a virus that will do the work of changing the world. It is not a virus that will do the work of prying open the cracks that we are now able to see and leading us forward into newness and grace. It is not a virus that will work healing in the world. That is up to us. It is up to us who are willing to hear anew the ancient commandment. It is up to us to listen for the spirit of truth. It is up to us, secure in the presence not of worldly power, but of God's abiding love. For we have been loved, and we can make that love known. Love that can open wide the cracks in our normal. Love that can reach in and lift up those who have long been put down. Love that can be uncomfortable, but keeps working for justice anyway, because this is the love of God. This is the love that is made tangible in us, and nothing, no virus, no fear, no worldly sin can ever take that love from us. Beloved, let us love one another, for thus and only thus can we participate in the resurrection. Beloved, let us love one another, for thus and only thus can the whole world be made new. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.